everybody. We are live again. This is Rob Keats, your host with goldsilverpros.com. This is our regularly scheduled Tuesday live edition broadcast brought to you on October 4th, 2022, 5.30 p.m. Central Time, 6.30 Eastern Time. Thank you, everybody, for joining. We're going to give it a couple minutes to load everybody into the stream before we get started. Sound check sounds good. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about part two of our series on the regulation of the commodities markets, and in particular with respect to gold and silver. And we're going to talk about this time why the CFTC can't save gold and silver from manipulation. And uh, th I think this is going to be a really interesting part of the series where we talk, we start to break down some of the issues with their approach and, and why they're not going to be able to completely regulate the gold and silver markets or the rest of the commodities markets. And we're going to sum this up in a third part of the series to come a little bit later, in which we talk about the final detailed aspects of the issues that they have. And we make recommendations because we don't just want to put it out there and say they're having trouble regulating this market without making some recommendations on how they could fix it. We think that's important as well. There's a lot to this video, guys. It's going to take a wee bit of time to get through it because we're dealing with a lot of streaming content. Uh, in the meantime, while we let everything get loaded, uh, Super Chats are open. If you guys want to ask a question, I'll monitor that during the presentation and try to answer them. I'll try to look through the regular chat and grab your questions where I can. Thank you, everybody, for joining the program. Joseph S., Ralph Potts for being supporters of the program. We definitely do appreciate it. Neil Hahn for being here, as well as Richie Bowe and everybody else that's here. Thank you so much for joining the program. I think we got about 110 in, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Now, we're going back through video of Matthew Hunter, who was assistant director, a deputy, I'm sorry, uh, deputy director for both FERC and the CFTC. We're going to focus more on the CFTC part. And the first part of the series uh, was something on the channel a little bit while back. Let's go ahead and get the share started, and I'll show you uh, what I am talking about as we're going to go to the channel and look at the previous video in the series. And note that we're going to have three videos in this series as well. So this will be the second of three. And I want to show you the one that got it all started because you're going to want to take a look at it first to understand what we are talking about and go over the first part of it. So uh, the first part of it was called the most important thing about gold and silver. Hey, this is your host, Rob Key. Nobody ever told you. We'll go over the first part of the presentation on the CFTC. Here's where we go over the second part of it. We're going to start with uh, the first video, which is the panel discussion I had with Matthew Hunter, who was assistant director of the CFTC. And we're going to be talking about resources, detection capabilities, specifics on the type of data available, and some of the limitations on the approach they have to detecting some of these things. And here we go with video number one. And the budget proposal was for me to have over the next two years um, up to, a, if memory's right, about 130 and would grow all the way through 2017 to a significant number of people. When I left, um, I had 12 analysts. 12 analysts is, uh, will get a job done, but it cannot find everything. 
And the, the group is torn with a lot of other responsibilities other than finding, um, let's say, benchmark manipulation or position limit violations uh, or spoofing. We spent years building the programs to detect what I call simple spoofing, the most, the most basic type of thing. One commodity, one future, layering showing that uh, you know a, a, an ad of bids against the small offer, trade of the small offer, cancellation of all the bids, as an example. Um, the budgets uh, didn't grow for years. Then the group was, um, the, I would never have said that the 69 people that I had on day one could do the job. Some of them could do the job that I was asking them to do, which was be data-centric first. We're not doing what we did since 1990. We're going to change the function. We're going to be a data-centric uh, organization looking for, for um, non-compliance, reporting uh, 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 violations, and the more serious things, which is benchmark manipulation uh, through portfolio analysis. Um, so when you say the staffing levels, you know, are they adequate? The answer is absolutely not. When I was at FERC to give you the idea of the perspective of it, I was asked, how many people would I need to catch everything that you would, if you have the data, can you catch everything? And I said, yeah, it's going to be something like 2,000 people. And they only have two commodities, natural gas and electricity. He said, what do you mean 2,000 people? I said, you asked me to catch everything. What you really want to know is, how do I catch some? <laughs> so you decide how many people I have, and I will tell you through resource allocation or that we will catch some, but we won't catch everything. The, the, the bad actor, I said this last night, mm -hmm. I believe there, that, that there's market manipulation every day in the market, the market being all markets. I don't know which one. So is it in the treasuries today at 10 o'clock? Is it at uh, you know, the gold market and the fix? Is it uh, the closing of the S&P 500? Is it the Russell that's being, I don't know which one that one man, one woman is attacking for purpose or several people with a similar idea are attacking for purpose. But I know this, there are bad actors, all right? Not everybody is a bad actor. There are a lot of honest people, but there are bad actors. There are also bad actors everywhere else, all right? They're, they're out there. So, so I can't tell, tell you that answer. I can tell you that that's not the way we look at the world, all right? The way we look at the world is what does the data tell us, all right? We are, so there, spoofing is, is something that, that, I say, is, that I say, you have all the data for it, for a detection of a future spoof. If the futures are being used to get at the value of a cash market, you don't have all the data um, because we don't get cash market data. If the futures were being used for a swap, uh, to manipulate a swap, I might have the data, but I don't necessarily know that that swap is open and I should be looking at it. The, the, the idea that, uh, that, any, that there is someone in a foreign nation who is manipulating more than someone who's domestic. We don't look at the data through the perspective of nation. And I generally tell the staff, you don't need the name of the 
person to say, let us look at bad actor bank, right? We don't, we don't care about that. You go look at the data, and if bad actor bank turns up, then we'll make a, uh, a special call for more data to, to confirm whether or not we think a violation occurred. Remember that, that for CFTC surveillance, surveillance doesn't recommend for prosecution. You recommend referral to enforcement for investigations. The bar is pretty low. We get enough indication to say likely something happened here. You need to look at it, uh, right, and to, to send it along. So um, we, nation doesn't mean anything. So do people in other nations do things? Sure. Do people in the United States do things? Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to stop this one right there. And there's a lot to unpack there. I played part of that segment on the last video, but I, I played a little bit longer segment there to really give you an idea of, of what's going on. And before we get into analyzing what he just said, I did want to make a quick note. I do appreciate and respect Matthew Hunter coming to the conference and talking about this. I do respect the changes that he made when he was there at the CFTC in terms of building out a data-centric approach and building out an engine and understanding the resource constraints he had. This is not an indictment of him, his approach, or the people that work there. I believe they're probably really good and honest people doing the best that they can. I'm really more examining the process and the tools used and whether or not that would stand up to the market of bad actors and give us an idea of what's going on. And I, that's what I'm really criticizing. I'm definitely not criticizing the people, uh, not criticizing Matt. He definitely made improvements. I think he was going the right direction with data-centric. I think it was going... The right direction with a lot of things he talked about but at the end of the day it's just not enough in my opinion and i'm going to explain why so breaking down that last segment uh, the, the detection engine that they have does not handle cash settlement because they don't have the data on the cash market so if you're cash settling or you're going to a physical settlement they don't have that data because that data is, isn't in their system that's down to the participants doing the settling and one thing that you need to know about the cftc market is when you go to settle, especially in the precious metals, I'm going to focus on the precious metals here. When you go to settle, that becomes like a private transaction. Upon completion of that that uh, the, you know that futures contract, then you go to settle. And yes, there are processes to make sure settlement is done according to Hoyle, but it's not like that data is uploaded. And that's what he's saying. So parts of the market they can't see on cash settlement. They can go ask permission to get the data from someone, but they have to ask permission. They don't have the data access and the oversight for that. Just wanted to point that out. And that was you know per his testimony. Um, it's hard for them to connect one trade for another. Is it specifically futures focused? Is it on spoofing patterns? Does it have to do with the other, the swaptions and things? Um, it, but it's focused on one thing. What about trading patterns, times of day to affect pricing, say when volume is light. So when we see the market open and there's a big smash down in gold and silver on the derivatives market, we mean big downward price pressure, sometimes like a few percentage points or just a big amount. And it happens over and over in certain times of day. It didn't look as though they were looking at patterning of the market and then going examine the data. They mostly get a tip or an idea from someone or something that says, go look at something, and then they'll go look at it. So in other words, they're not looking at the market itself and saying, hmm, that's a curious pattern. Let me go look at it. They're waiting on somebody to tell them something, and then they go to the data. And they don't focus on an entity or a country or a trader. They just focus on data itself. Um what about trader positioning across markets? There's no cross-regulator collaboration between what's going on in the derivative market and, say, some other market like the London market or what's going on in the physical market or with the ETFs over gold and silver. So it's really hard to tell based upon the book that they have with the CFTC and the futures positions or the options or the swaptions. 
how that relates to their positioning elsewhere. So one blind spot that the CFTC may have, and it's not necessarily just the fault of the CFTC by themselves, is they don't have access to all these other markets that trade the precious metals. So it'd be hard for them to compare the book of trades on, on the derivatives market with the other markets. And that's not their fault, but that's perhaps something that we'll make in our recommendations as to how you compare the different markets and the same players in those markets or potentially the same clients and clients in those markets with others to see if there's some uh, manipulative or uh, trades being put on to take advantage of that. So I think from that quick three-minute little piece, I think we see some of the blind spots that are there that they don't have. So they have made improvements. They do have an engine, but there are things that they perhaps can't see. Next thing we're going to go on to is him identifying patterns to search for and how he does that. I think you find you will find this information uh, very interesting. By the way, thank you, Richie Bo, for becoming a GS Pro supporter. We appreciate that. Definitely wanted to call that out on the program. Thank you for being a supporter. We're going to play this from 1626 to 2010, so it's going to be about four minutes. And I want you to listen to what he has to say here. He's going on talking more about pattern recognition things, and I'm going to give you my thoughts after that. Stay, stay attuned after this segment for when we tell you what we think about this one. Um, one one follow-up to that question I want to ask you was, uh, given that approach, if um, you had the mission to try to identify specific types of trades, how difficult would that be for you? And the reason I ask that is because during some of these investigations by Department of Justice and, and other people that got involved, uh, they were getting testimony for traders, they were looking at some layering, they were eventually able to pull out some specific examples that came out in the press. How challenging, or how can they do that um, do they have different tool sets or is it just because they know they have a specific target? What, what is the difference between somebody doing that after the fact versus you in the moment trying to capture that type of stuff? So this is a complicated question. So as I said, the, the one, I can't talk about what it is that we did. Sure. And, uh, and I'm two years removed and I don't know what the enforcement teams at CFTC were involved in. So, um, the way we looked at the world for, for spoofing, once we built spoofing engines is to, detection engines, is to send that material to enforcement, right? They have to then reprioritize what it is that they're going to look at. So um, uh, they have their own resource issues. So we could, we could, I don't, I, it's, it's tough to say. Let's so let you just use an example of saying, let's say I found spoofing in every commodity that we pulled in a month, right? That we see potential uh, uh, spoofing, because all you see is, is the detection engine identifies layering as an, as an example. And it says, okay, we have these 200,000 instances, all right, uh, by these indiv individuals or firms. We send it on. Okay, all right. Is that part of this investigation? I have absolutely no idea. I don't want to know, and I can't comment on it if I knew. <laughs> right. So it could be that that the tool the tool does exactly the same thing for both organizations, and the priorities were different for some reason. I have no reason to say oh, I care about JP Morgan. I'm just looking at the data, right? If the data has a bank in it, we send it along and say, maybe there's an issue that CFTC attorneys care about or not, and maybe there's another agency that cares that they're in communication with. I have no idea. So the, the resource issue, 
you know, things fall away when people say, I don't have time for this. Um, I, I was talking with a friend of mine at the SEC about uh, something that I believe, and I won't go into it, uh, that I believe um, is, is uh, manipulated, that is um, of significant interest to the SEC, um, that I never looked at and been thinking about for about four or five years. And I didn't look at it because we didn't have any resources to apply. So I said, I can't build the detection of something that I think is significant because I just don't have the staff. All right. And the person that I could assign was, you know, this deep in other things. He said, I just, you have to let it go. I can't, can't do it. So I told him what my idea was. I don't know that, that they'll pursue it. <laughs> Depends right. upon their staffing and budget. Also, and whether whether he's thinking that my scenario is reasonable. True. Right. It's also, so. There's a lot of perception involved in that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to stop that one there. And there are several key important uh, points there to make. He's talking about lack of staffing, of course, that makes sense. There, there's often lack of staffing in a regulatory and audit type of position. I know I was in an audit position a long time and work re with regulations and staffing is always one of the big issues. The point they made there is a detection engine could go through and find layering and spoofing for you, and it may find multiple instances of something, but somebody has to uh, act upon that and actually do the investigation with the data, get it to where it could actually be put in a legal format and accepted uh, by the legal authorities. We'll get into the legal authorities here in a moment and problems that they have with data-centric approach, which they don't necessarily like. But it, it there could be patterns firing off every day and nobody's following up on them because maybe they don't have time. And, and that goes back to... He started with 69 analysts at the CFTC, and then when he left, he had 12. So they had lost 57 analysts. Obviously, when you lose the majority workforce like that, it gets harder to follow up on what the detection engine may be putting out. And for somebody who's worked with big data sets before, when you have an engine producing a bunch of information on that data, which requires a human to go back and look at it and investigate it, the, the machine is going to put out way more information than you have time to go back and investigate. And that's the problem with big data. It's getting big data to the point where it's actionable, where it's timely, and it's something you can use it for. And I won't criticize the CFTC too much here because there is a crap ton of data. And for me, having worked in audit and forensic capabilities uh, for so long, I know that big data is an issue that everybody's dealing with. And getting that big data to a point at which you could utilize specific parts of information can be very difficult. It's, you, it's basically drinking from the fire hose. So I definitely understand that. The problem, however, being that it just goes to prove that they're, well, first of all, the patterns aren't fully developed because there are a couple of patterns they're developing, which are specific to that market that they can see, which is not necessarily taking into other market data and may not necessarily be looking at other patterns that we talked about at the beginning of the program, like slamming silver or gold down a certain time of day by a particular person or a particular participant. They don't do that. And they and the detection engine may not find every type of manipulative activity. It definitely is better than nothing. Definitely is putting out a lot of information, but they don't have the people to look at all of it. And that's part of the problem. So we're going to continue on this video. We're going to go about five more minutes. We're going to talk about the approach based on market knowledge and uh, another good segment here to listen to. He's got a lot to say. Let's go ahead and go back to uh, the program and listen to what he has to say here comment on that? Sure. So one of the things that we did as an audit team is you set your audit goals based upon a lot of times what management perceived as being potential uh, threats to the business plus feedback you got from line level management and, think, and previous results. 
But on an audit team, I work for a big company like Verizon or even for Ernst & Young doing, doing work for other clients. It's very difficult after the fact to have picked all the right places that you want to look at and have all the right resources to do the work and then catch all the potential scenarios. And one of the things that gets very difficult, especially, is when you have two parties acting, because it's easier to put in controls against a single party, against collusions, much more difficult, easy to circumvent those controls. So there always are gonna be areas, I think, in which you can have controls in place, but those controls, if you look at Sarbanes-Oxley, for example, we always said that didn't cover collusion to manipulate financial statements. There are weaknesses in, in, in the resources and the time and the effort it takes. And often, you know, that was always a frustration point with us as auditors is you do the best you can, you don't always have the resources you try to do, and, but there, there's just stuff you're never gonna know. There's always stuff going on you're never gonna find, right? And that's kind of, you know, I could see that with some of the regulatory agencies. You're going back in a market that has, you know, potentially millions of transactions, especially like a derivative market where you look at the open interest on, on Comex, for example, and it could be 400,000, you know, in a day. And, that, and that's, that, that's a lot of work. Can you speak to that a little bit in terms yes. of? So um, I spoke about this before, all right, uh, during the, the, this conference. So if you've heard it before, I'm sorry. So there's a lot of data. There isn't a, so much data that you can't look at it. Everything is looked at through, you build a, uh, um, a, a computer program. There's too much data to do it by hand, right? We're not gonna go uh, and, and try to understand trading. So most people don't, don't understand that the market isn't futures, it's not options. It's futures and options, all right, is one leg. Um, other derivatives, swaps and swaptions, are another leg. And the third leg, and the, probably the most important, though it is not the most heavily traded, is the physical markets. So you've got physical um, and physical contracts, agreements, uh, uh, transfer and transportation, all right, for all commodities. So you have to have all three of them. You have to have the data of all three to understand. So if you look at futures only and somebody says, well, I'm hedging, hedging what? hedging swaps and swaptions, hedging uh, futures options, hedging physical transactions. And then the question becomes, is it true? The, the benchmark manipulation, I think, is the most interesting of all the things that, that can be done by the, the CFTC and commodities. And it is also the most difficult thing to do because you have to recapitulate the trading book of the trader to understand it as they understand it, um, all right, and then mm, prove that they were trading for effect to change the value of what we call the benefiting position, which can be physical or, or it can be uh, derivative. So, uh, so you have to understand the portfolio. I say this first rule of trading for every trading organization is know thy position. The, the one thing that a trader can get fired for um, immediately is not knowing his position. They don't get fired if you don't know what the price is. Price volatility, uh, right? You lost it for a moment, who cares, right? The question is, what's your exposure to that missing price? Not what is the missing price? So if I can understand and the analyst can understand the portfolio as well as the trader can understand the portfolio, um, then we can understand whether they had an incentive to manipulate or not. And then it is easy to create um, the simple spreadsheet of all the open positions and demonstrate if the value of the 
the portfolio will change by moving the benchmark price. So if you double the price, uh, right, do you make more money or do you lose? So when someone says, the market is only giving me what the market will give. I, I, I don't know what your complaint is, he said. So you're saying you're aligned with the market, that a seller wants to sell high and that a buyer wants to buy low, right? That's aligned. Everyone knows, knows that is economically. But if I change the value of the, the, the commodity, right, the benchmark. Change. So let's say it's settled at 100. We make it 200. If you say you're a seller, and I change the price to 200, you should make more money. If you lose money, it says the portfolio is aligned differently. So if I double the, if I double the price, all right, and you're a buyer, you're gonna make a staggering amount more money, which says if you're in the market buying, something is wrong to say I'm incented to pay an infinite price. All right, you're not aligned with the market. You're not trying to buy low, you're trying to buy high. And that says, if you're buying when, when you benefit from higher prices, something is wrong with the portfolio and you're likely manipulating. Um, and that's what, what benchmark manipulation analysts are trying to detect. Are you in a market moving the price to benefit a benefiting position? That benefiting position can be a derivative, it can be the settling of a, or establishment of a derivative, it can also be a physical product. There are lots of commodities that have something called physical at index. And so the physical is being set um, by different trades in other physical instruments. Um, and, and that's what we do. All right, we're going to stop here and talk about what he said there. There's a little bit to unpack there that I want to talk about. The main point is that they don't focus on what the market is telling them because they're not market analysts. They're, it's a data-centric approach in which he'll look at the data, but he's not looking at outside clues. So I'm not sure what their plan attack is to figure out the landscape, because if you don't understand the landscape of trades and you just understand the individual trades themselves, but you don't understand the landscape of who's doing what and why, you know, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what you're looking for. I'll use a cybersecurity example. If we have somebody coming in and attacking a particular vulnerability that would allow them to have administrative credentials to a critical resource, we are going to change those administrative credentials. Uh, we're going to look across. We're, we're going to see that in the news. We're going to see there's a big exploit, say, I'm just going to pick one, on, on a particular type of Linux machine or Unix machine that's running a critical resource on our network. And we're going to identify all the systems that have that vulnerability. We're going to patch it. And if that were to compromise administrative credentials, we'll also change your credentials. So, so when I was in cybersecurity or audit or many of those IT type functions, I would we would look at what was going on in the world. We would bring it to what we call our storm center or centralized response. We would look at that weakness within our own systems and then we would go fix it. I didn't get the feeling, and I asked him this several times during the conversation, especially the roundtable I had with him. Are you guys looking at the market and going there and using that to dive into the data to see if, if if something had happened and like a previous fine or somebody complained about something and that not really unless they get a tip so it, it doesn't appear that it is a market focused analysis of manipulation it doesn't mean it's not a, a good analysis it just means he was saying they aren't taking clues which i find kind of curious it's also hard for them to understand traders if they don't have access to the trader's book and the ability to reperform what we call an audit, the reperformance or redoing what the trader may have been doing so they could figure out whether it's being manipulative. 
So this is kind of a confirmation that CFTC cannot detect manipulative activities without the transactional data from players on the market, whether it be cash settlement data or other data that they have on individual positions that they're putting into the system. That would seem to be information that the traders have that the CFTC needs to have for enforcement. And we'll put that in our recommendations when we get to the end of the series. The approach also focuses on traders with anomalous trades to pre-manipulation. So if their book were one way and they traded another way to try to benefit that book, they may look at it, but only for that book. It seems to lack the understanding that you could have a particular trade to manipulate the market, which may go against that person's book, but may benefit them in other ways that they don't seem to say, ooh, that could be an issue. So for example, if you are wanting to manipulate silver price down and you were long silver, but you dumped a bunch of short on it, it would say, well, that may not be manipulation because it's going against their long book. Yeah, but it depends on who owns the positions in the long book. If you look at the bullion banks, for example, or the managed money, for example, their accounts trade for multiple individuals and you could benefit an individual within there while maybe necessarily hurting everybody else, if, especially if it's only temporary, especially if you're doing that trade temporarily. And I think those are the types of things that you need to look at because most of the bullion banks and managed money have both longs and shorts in their book. And I want to see how a particular trade could be used to, to benefit someone on, a, on another market, or even if it goes against their book, if for a certain purpose in a certain time, bringing back, for example, in the mornings when silver and gold get smashed, they get smashed because there's a lot of short pressure that comes on the derivative market, and then they tend to rise back. So that may not have negatively affected the positions of the bullion banks making it because they're still holding those riveted positions days later, but it may have helped them for the short term at a certain way. So I don't think looking at a trade contrary to the trader's book in and of itself is the only way to detect manipulation. I think there are other ways there. I understand what he's saying there, but I think it's a somewhat limited approach. And basically, I think their approach can never work at the level needed to regulate manipulated trades across markets or across a book or across customers within a book of certain entities. Uh, that, that's my opinion. I think that the video shows that. So now we're going to go to a second video. This is explaining the process for analysis enforcement. This is his main presentation there at the conference. This one's going to go a few minutes. I may cut it a little bit short, but we're going to look at his process and enforcement capabilities as he presented them at the conference. And we're going to talk about some potential weaknesses of the CFTC may have had there as we get into the second video as we go over to the second video there and we should be queued up and ready to go at the 11:30 mark and here we go investigations are official um uh, and it can be informal but they're official um, actions of the division of enforcement at cftc and generally speaking it means they have subpoena authority um, surveillance doesn't have subpoena authority Surveillance actually has something that's as good, um, and that is called special call. Any transaction by a market participant or registrant can be called upon to produce all books and records, every transaction, every related, uh, or related um, financial agreement by um, a letter. So the, the surveillance group can have a full portfolio look uh, at, at any actor. The process, and so I think this applies to the, to the public, as, uh, particularly the first two, the, the first two um, bullets. Um, I had to explain and teach that 
because there's so much emotion that the analysts invest in uh, finding emotion. out whether a participant is a bad actor or not, that they bring their opinions to the, to the process. And your opinion is not a fact. You have to find it in the data. You have to find some, some place that, that says something is truthful as opposed to, I want it to be this, and so I'll represent it through numbers or statistics. So don't care about, about your opinion. Belief is not evidence itself. And you'll hear people say, my gut's told me. And I said, I'm, I'm a big gut guy. I, I traded off my gut. He said, what you're really saying is at the moment I can't articulate all the factors that I've taken in to come to a conclusion that, re that makes me act. But you can't go to court with that. If, if you go to court with that, you lose. You can't say, I believe they did it, and therefore you should convict them. When we um, ask questions, or someone asks questions of us, you have to be very careful that they're not making declarations that's testimony. They make a, it, it's, it, it's a version of, when did you stop beating your wife? Um, it's very easy to bring your assumption or your belief through uh, a question that is testifying rather than asking for uh, an answer that's verifiable. Um, the most important question is number four for how we operate and how all surveillance operates. So I taught this at two different institutions and I've had this discussion with many other um, surveillance groups nationally, internationally, and at the state level. Can you see what the observer saw? So if you think about how a investigation can start, it can start with a tip, a complaint, something that's in the press. But surveillance can only look at the data that it has. It doesn't start from some external source, it starts from the data. So if someone says, Charlie was beating his wife, you know, Charlie was abusing the market. You go, where can I see that in the data? So there's a difference between confidential and public data. Public data only gives you um, a very small amount of information. It tells you when a trade took place, what the volume of that trade was, and what the price was. That will not tell you whether a bad actor was trading. It will just tell you a trade took place. So if an observer is using public data and then is saying it means this, say, how could you know that? You're, if you're projecting assumptions into the data, then your conclusion, and I'm going to jump ahead and just use a phrase that came out of an earlier silver market uh, um, investigation called failure, where the judge said, I think it was Judge Patterson said, that um, the, the plaintiffs were making conclusionary allegations. You say something to, because you hope it to be true, believe it to be true, but has no evidence behind it whatsoever. We have to, at, at surveillance, you have to operate within what law? What is it that you're looking at and why? Um, right? And is the behavior that you're witnessing legal and according to the law or not? 
Should is not part of the equation. So if the basic assumption, and I'm going to jump way ahead, um, if the basic assumption is that the United States uh, dollar should be backed, use the word should, should be backed by physical asset, but legally it's not. It has no part in my understanding of how I look at the, the, the behaviors in derivatives, because the should doesn't apply. Go to Congress, change the law, that's an entirely different matter, but should is not something that gets applied in the process of can we find a bad actor. That's not to say that you don't sometimes get asked about policy. We won't talk about that. All right. That was an interesting segment because he seems to be saying the reason he, he, he there's two things he said. Yes, you can have an outside tip or, or news story, but he focuses on the data and he doesn't want to project anything, any belief system, wherever it comes from into the data, which I understand. However, I think it's a, a tad disingenuous to say that you can only look at the trading data and that's where everything needs to come from. Because if there is a pattern of behavior where, for example, JP Morgan comes out in a previous uh, case and says, yeah, we did this. It was ingrained uh, uh, upon us by our supervisors. It was institutionalized. We did this all the time. We colluded with with other people doing it. And to the tune of we made two to $300 million a year off of this trade. We only got fined you know, nine or 20 billion, or I'm sorry, nine or 20 million. So they made a bunch of money and they knew they could do it again. How you would not use that information that came out in the DOJ investigation and say, let's go look at the data and see if we can prove that. I find that to be a little disingenuous, although I understand why he says it. He says it because he doesn't want outside parties, particularly like bloggers like me or other analysts or potentially other people from saying things that then they have to go investigate and prove right or wrong. And I understand him doing that because you could quickly overwhelm them with having to go do all these investigations. And I get it. So there needs to be a little bit of ring fencing and a little bit of triage process for what gets looked at. But to say that you're not going to go to the market and see what's going on and use that to see if the data can prove that, I think is a bit disingenuous. And I don't think that's the way he meant it. But the way that he is, he is boxing the data out from anything else to say that the data proves everything, uh, I think is a little disingenuous because he doesn't have all the data. And I think he doesn't have a lot of transactional cash data he's mentioned. And I don't know that their detection engine really picks up everything. And it, it, it won't detect things where they're trading against positions in other markets. And I don't know if that detection engine can determine, for example, you take a, a book from a, a managed money or a bullion bank. These are on the cot report. So let's say you take managed money or a bullion bank and you could look at their trades and say, they're trading to manipulate the market because they know all the transactional data, all their participants within that managed money or within that bullion bank. And there's a lot that they're missing there. And so I think there's a disconnect here between what he can look at in the data and what he's trying to detect versus the schemes that are being used around these markets and through the markets and the lack of transparency into, into uh, what people may be doing within their books. And I'm sure he would disagree with me there, but all I got to say is the data from the CFTC didn't necessarily prove all the things that have come out with the convictions and the fines. Those were done by different people. It doesn't mean the CFTC wasn't participating, but at the end of the day, those were started and done by outside parties, not by the CFTC. So the CFTC has this engine, is detecting all this stuff. Why aren't they the ones leading the investigations? Maybe they are. Maybe they're reporting to Department of Justice. I don't know. But why is it more coming out from the CFTC about 
the rate at which this is occurring? Why is there not a report to Congress? Why is there not a report to the, we, the people, who basically everything in the U.S. is done for and the government serves? I don't know. And there seems to be a lot there that doesn't add up to what he's saying versus what we're seeing outside of their data-centric ap approach. I do agree that belief is not evidence, but when you see things going on in the market, that can be signs for you to go look for stuff. And there's nothing wrong with looking for evidence to see if a particular type of manipulation is kicking off. I'm going to go back to video one and we're going to play 2617 and we're going to look at spoofing and positioning uh, where that may be legal or illegal. And then we'll get to the last segment of this pretty quickly. Stick with me. We're almost done on this segment and I'll do my concluding remarks there. We're going to start at the 2617 mark of video one. I believe we're already there. I got a question for you specifically. Please. Sorry, let me get this shared. I don't think the share is up on the screen. And here we go. By the way, thank you for all the information you're providing. Um, we, we don't get this a lot to someone of your experience. Yeah. So this is, not, this is not the first time um, that I've been in the public. I, I don't want to, to give a secret, you know, which is about this specific trade secret of a firm or the position of a firm from years ago. I'm nearly two years removed. I, I'm, I'm not gonna talk about anything relevant or related to those types of things anymore. I'm trying not to say anything at all. I do have a question about the mechanics of the market, not with specific to any company or investigation, but it's something I think that's not maybe not well understood. So when you're doing, let's say you do a futures trade, you have a buyer and a seller, or a long and a short, if you will. Um, one of the allegations in a spoofing type a scenario is that someone's putting in a market order and then they remove it. And the, the implication being that as the market makers or the market participants are all looking at the market, if they see a bunch of bids going a different direction, that may in their mind influence their view of that market, even though those trades have not occurred. So in terms of, of spoofing in general, does spoofing in general actually help create a market or move a market in and of itself? And is the market determined solely by the amount of long and short positions? I can talk about all that. Okay, thank you. Okay, Look, spoofing. So spoofing clearly is, uh, is a crime, all right? It is a single line in the rules and regulations. It's disruptive trading. And obviously, and if you disrupt trading, you are interfering with a well-functioning market. That, that, that's the idea. Um, so the behavior is, uh, that classic behavior is, to submit um, uh, uh, orders that you do not intend to fill to influence the decision of the market, somebody else to, to trade on the other side of your orders on another order that you've placed for, for a volume. Generally, it's a small volume against a large volume and then cancel all the, the orders that you don't intend to trade. So clearly that is, um, it's, if you think of it in terms of the SEC, you said that it's injecting false information into the market, uh, essentially saying, if you could talk to the market, you all should buy because uh, with me because the market is worth so much more and Charlie's going to buy behind us. So lift this offer. And when you lift the offer, the, 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 uh, uh, all the bids dry up and you're left with, with having traded. Um, not your economic best interest because you were misinformed deliberately. That's what spoofing is. But spoofing 
for me, is a transitory thing. The market immediately reverts to where it was, and it, 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 someone is defrauded because the market may never have traded at that price again, even if it was at the top of the order book, right? You, the, the, that the vibration may never have traded at that level again, and then moved away. So you say that um, I sold one on the spoof, and then the market moved lower, says the market wanted to move lower. Someone was defrauded, because they traded against their, be their best interest. We're talking about a very slim price difference, right? A tick. Um, if someone were to say, a tick was misrepresented in all the trading today in silver, one tick, would anybody care? And it was, no, right? The person who got defrauded on the one, on the, the one tick, they might care, but nobody else does, right? If you do it 100 times a day, does everybody care? You do it 1,000 times in a day. If 100 people do it 1,000 times a day, because more than one person may be trying to spoof at any given time, you go, you know, it's saying that the, the market itself is, the market integrity is threatened, right? It's, it, it, it's being abused. And why do you, should we have confidence in it if spoofing is taking place? So it should be prevented. Or prevented. And there's a, a lot of emphasis on it now. And I think the DOJ case, if I'm not mistaken, is a data case, all right? There's no... There's no smoking gun, there's no tape recording, there's no speaking document that says, I was placing orders in the market that I intended not to trade. Um, so uh, it's important from that perspective. Uh, for 20 years, I've been saying the data is a, smoke, is, is a speaking document. You just have to learn how to read it. Um, as opposed to, I need this very specific, I was manipulating, uh, the grain market, as an example, the wheat market, or the gold market, or the silver market. I was manipulating you have a written document someplace in English, um, as opposed to my, my analogy is, if, it's, if you have a murder confession in Turkish and you don't read Turkish, do you have a confession, All right? And people will say, no, but you can get a translator. I can read the data. If I can read Turkish, in Turkish it's a confession. All right, we're going to stop it there. So he says several things there. I I would like to point out, I, I do think this gentleman is great for what he does and in, in, uh, he's done a lot of good things. I, I do have some, maybe some disagreements with, with some things, but let's talk about that. He's talking about spoofing when it's done here or there, it may only affect one person, the opposite side trade. If it were enacted and it were against, you know, wh where they would have wanted to go, had that, that spoof trade being put in, that makes sense. He also makes, makes the point that if it happens a lot, you can manipulate a market. The point that I went, but he also says the DOJ case, and I'm not sure which one he was talking about because there, there were multiple ones, but the DOJ case is more of a data case and not the smoking gun and somebody admitting something. In all of the cases that I've seen come out in the news, there was a person who said, we did this. So it was, we did this, and this is how we did it. And it was institutionalized. And my, my, my uh, manager taught me to do it. So that is sort of the smoking gun where somebody's saying something and it would just be interesting to see whether the CFTC and this group was consulted to see if they provided them the data for that. Because if it's data providing the CFTC has, it's probably where it came from. But in all the cases I've seen, there's been an admission. There's been an admission from the trader 
uh, what they're doing. At one point, they had chat logs. This is years ago in one of the older investigations. They had chat logs with people at different banks doing it. It was collusive. So we know that there's a history of that being done. And I find it a, a tad disingenuous, I guess, that the CFTC at this point is not actively looking for that kind of behavior, that the detection engine is really looking for spoofing and benchmark, but it's not focusing on certain entities and people who have come out and said, institutionalized, we did it, it's here. I just find his entire response to me asking him questions about what had happened and do you then look for this to say, no, it's data centric and only if the data detection engine points us that direction, we get a hot tip. But you've had that in the market for 10 effing years. Why are you not looking at it? I don't, I, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, I don't understand. I also think that while they're doing wonderful things and he's advanced things, and perhaps in the last two years since he's been, they've advanced some more things. The, the, the ability to prove benchmark manipulation is very difficult. The ability to get this through the courts, because I don't necessarily like the data, is difficult. And by the way, I have a master's in cyber, uh, information assurance, which is cybersecurity with a concentration in digital forensics. And I took a class on forensics and how to get uh, evidence to the court and get it accepted by the court. And I disagree that the courts won't like data. If data is done the right way and you can prove chain of custody of the evidence and you can prove that wasn't tampered with and you can do a good report and back up that report and have it be factual, the courts will recognize it. I was taught that in my classes. I, I haven't ever been to court to, to testify, but I know people have done it that taught me about it. And yes, you can get data into court. You can get a forensic investigation into court. I was trained how to actually do that at my at the master's. And that was a part of what we did in cybersecurity was doing data investigations and then making recommendations. And either legally or you know, not in a legal situation, but within the context of an organization that had to make a decision on this act and the people involved. And the burden of proof there for data is not quite as high as, he's, as he is intimating, I don't think. Now, he may have had courts reject his, you know, their their data at times. Uh, but again, I think there's a little bit of, of uh, him disagreeing with himself. He says, on one hand, the DOJ investigation was data related, but he says data is really hard. But the investigations I've seen weren't just data related. They were testimonial and people admitting to, and in some cases in the past, chat records that I don't necessarily think what he says is necessarily agreeing with what I've seen in the press, but I understand what he's saying and why he's saying it. I, here's my conclusion at the end of part two of this series about why the manipulation of gold and silver can't be stopped is there are structural deficiencies with the way that the CFTC is run and funded. You have an enforcement division, and a surveillance division, which are operating in different silos with different uh, objectives, which makes sense if that process is fully connected, but it sounds like it may not be because they're just passing information from surveillance to enforcement. How do we know who's watching that entire thing from start to finish to make sure that investigation is really you know, flowing through and following. Silos in an organization sometimes can stop investigation. Sometimes they can help, sometimes they can stop. There seems to be structural issues with the detection engine. There seems to be structural issues of how many people can take the, the data from the detection engine and do something. There seems to be a problem with them initiating their own investigations. There seems to be a problem with them taking outside input or outside stimuli from other investigations and using that to build uh, an investigation, which I think most detectives in America and the FBI and CAA would probably criticize because Let's say Jack the Ripper, you're in old London, Jack the Ripper's killed five people, and you, you've said, okay, this is Jack the Ripper. A sixth person dies, and you don't at least think about 
Well, could it be Jack the Ripper or other serial killer like Jeffrey Dahmer? And if it has the same attributes, boy, maybe we need to use those past investigations to, to look at the data at hand or look at the evidence at hand and see whether that matches. To say that you're not actively doing that is a major problem that I have with the CFTC. I'm sorry. This guy's done a lot of good stuff. But if that's what the CFTC is doing, they're not serving the public, they're not serving the American people, and they're not making sure that the, this market has integrity. Because I can tell you right now from somebody who has a degree in forensics and has been in a data field for over 25 years, if you cannot pr prove the integrity of a specific piece of data or a specific trade, you cannot prove that it wasn't manipulated and vice versa. You have to have one or the other. And if you're not able to do that for every single trade, you don't know. You don't know at, at a legal level for a court or even an individual level as an investigator that what you're seeing in the market is legitimate. And his admissions here are that they don't have enough people. They don't have this or that. But he believes the markets aren't manipulated every day. How in the hell can you make that conclusion? If you can't prove every trade's legitimate, then it means every trade could be illegitimate. It's one or the other. And if you're not doing that for every trade, how do you know? How can you make those statements? How can you show that your current process and tools and, and the resources that you have are effective? You can't. You can't. And I have a degree in forensics. Okay. It's a different field, but forensics is forensics. The process for forensics is no different on any type of data. I've worked with thousands of types of data in my career. And forensics is generally saying, yes, you got to know specifics of how that data works and the processes that got the data and all that. But forensics is forensics. Okay. I have a degree in the field. And I'm telling you right now, a lot of the stuff that he said doesn't make a lot of sense. To be fair to him, I think he's increased in his role, the detection capabilities, and did a lot of wonderful things. And I don't want to criticize him directly. But the approach that they're using is not good enough. And I have experience in this in this field and it's just not good enough and as an auditor i see all sorts of control problems and process problems in here that lead me to believe that the cft can't save gold and silver from manipulation and that's why i titled this presentation exactly the way i did this is why in black and white from testimony from a former deputy director of the cftc why they can't prevent manipulation in gold and silver or the rest of the commodities markets they can't they don't have the tools and the tools that they do have are not being used as effectively as it could be had they had more resources. And some of the statements he's making seem to be protective of his agency, which I understand if you work in an agency, you want to protect the, the, that agency. But it seems as though some of the things he's saying are a little bit in certain areas contradictory. And I didn't get confidence from his conversation that the CFTC could really regulate the commodities markets or gold and silver specifically. I didn't have confidence they could find all the malfeasance. I didn't have confidence they were paying attention to what the hell was going on in the outside world, using that as an informative piece of data and structuring investigations like that. In fact, he basically said, whatever goes on in the outside world, we don't care because that could unduly influence the data. It's all about the data. But the, the way that they're reviewing the data and examining the data and is, is, in his own words, inadequate to task. So the, the, what the CFTC has right now is not fit for purpose. And I think it's blatantly obvious they can't surveil and detect what's going on in this market in several ways in which I've explained that during this video. Now we're going to have one more video. There's a lot more video testimony here. I can't go through all of it. I'm going to go through the rest of the juicy stuff. And then on the last video, I'm going to make recommendations on how to improve. Why? I'm a former auditor. It's what I used to do, write reports, uh, improve controls, 
sit down with, with management and work that out. And I'm talking about management from line level management all the way up to boards of directors. I've done it all. So I'm going to make that to a recommendation that hopefully, and, and I can't enforce this recommendation, but I can put it out there in the hopes that somebody will listen in the government. They'll pass legislation. They'll give the CFTC more money. Maybe they'll bring Matthew back and say, now we're giving you more money. Go hire a bunch of people and do this the right way it needs to be done. And Matt can do that. I, I believe if Matt had the resources, he could do it. Again, it's not a criticism of him. It's a criticism of the system, the design, the resources, and the focus that the government has on regulating markets. It's not enough here. It's not enough. What they have is not nearly enough. And this is this conclusively, this interview, this experience, this investigation uh, by me and listening to this gentleman and looking at the markets over the years uh, tells me why the CFT cannot save gold and silver manipulation. Probably not oil, probably not hog futures, probably not any of it, but especially gold and silver. We got another part coming up. Stay on the channel. I fully recommend the Perth Mint series that we have and the other playlists that we have on the channel. And stay tuned because we're going to do more on this investigation and stay tuned because starting next week, we're going to dive down into SLV. I've got some astounding stuff for you guys on SLV that you're not going to believe that I don't think anybody else is covering. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but stay tuned next week. Next week, we look at SLV, that trade, what's exactly going on and what that means for future potential prices along with current inventories of silver and specifically related to that fund in the London market. And uh, on Thursday, we'll conclude this series of the CFTC with my recommendations on why they can't save gold and silver manipulation now. But if they make enhancements, maybe they can save it for manipulation in the future and manipulation of other markets as well. Thank you, everybody, for joining the live stream. We appreciate everybody being on here. Thank you for Richie Bow for becoming a new uh, member and subscriber. Thank you to Ralph, Joseph, and all the rest of the subscribers on the channel. Thank you to everybody who watched questions. Oh, last thing I'm going to do is read the poll question. I put a poll question up at the beginning of every live stream. This one was, does the government have the system in place to guarantee the integrity of the commodities markets? 5% said, yes, they do. 86% said, no, not really. And 8% said they can be effective. Sometimes we'll end the poll there. Thank you, everybody, for joining the program. We got more coming up. Stay on the channel. Click through the playlist. We ain't done yet. This has been Cowboy Metals live stream from the great state of Texas where we take no BS. Until next time, Rob Keats, Gold Silver Pros.